Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation 21, starting at verse 16 today. In our study of heaven, what I'm trying to do is drill down as deep as I can to bring out all the nuances so that people have a full understanding of what heaven is like, and particularly the new Jerusalem that's being emphasized in Revelation 21 and 22. It is the only place in the Bible, actually, that talks about heaven, that describes what it looks like. And so we had to wait till 95 AD until John received that revelation from Messiah about what the new Jerusalem that he went to prepare for us looks like and what that place is like. What we're going to focus in on today is what's in the title of the message is Humanity's True Desire, Sacred Space. Because in sacred space, the Kodesh HaKodeshim is the Holy of Holies. What you notice is it's a cube and it's signifying the Holy of Holies, but in a very much larger scale than what the original one looked like in the tabernacle and the temple. But in sacred space, what you find out is that everything we have been looking for is found there. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it says this, And Solomon wrote this. He says, he has put eternity in their hearts, talking about human beings, that we have a sense and a longing for this other reality, this eternity, this place, this sacred space that we once had. And our forefathers, Adam and Eve, had it. They got to be in sacred space with the holy triune God. And in our hearts, we want to go back to that place. And if you remember in the Garden of Eden, it says this, they were naked and not ashamed. If you remember that phrase, that's a key understanding spiritually that in that sacred space, their communion with God had no condemnation. There was nothing that they were ashamed about. There was no guilt. There was no feelings of, I need to retreat in that environment until they fell. And in that place, this Kodesh HaKodeshim, there's no threats to us anymore. There's no pressures of life that are bearing down on us. In this place, there's no trials and tribulations. They're over. It's a place of rest. It's a place that joy never gets old. It just keeps getting newer and better and better the more we're there. It's a place where everyone treats you right. No one's messing with you. No one's trying to hurt you. No one's trying to do evil things to you. It's a place where even ourselves, we are free to act in obedience. We don't have the sin nature with us, pulling us back, making us rebel. We're actually free from the sin nature. And you finally, as Paul talked about in Romans 7, as he battles the sin nature, you know, he goes, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I should do, I don't do that. But in this environment, you finally become and do what you need to do and want to do, which is obedience to the Lord. It's very refreshing with those who are struggling with proclivities and issues in their life, and they seem to not get over them. There's coming a day where you'll be free of that trial and that struggle. But also in this Kodesh Had Kodeshim, it's a place where you can love and be loved. You're free to love and you won't be burned. No one will stab you in the back. 
And a lot of people don't love because they're afraid. They're afraid of rejection in this world. And I understand that. It's hard to love sometimes because you don't want to give your heart out because you've been burned too many times. This is a place where you're completely free to love and no one will ever do that to you. Your needs are satisfied. You'll see God's face. And it's a place of acceptance. This is a place we're all looking for. This is the place of our dreams. And it's embedded in your soul to want it. That's why God put it into our hearts. Now, here's the problem. So many people go on a search for this place and the person of God, but they turn to other things as counterfeits and thinking that these other things will provide what this environment provides. And they seek it in money. They seek it in relationships, material things, experience like thrill-seeking, doing things in their life, going places, seeing things. And what they end up, they're on a search and they don't find it and they come up empty. And then they become disillusioned. What they're really searching for is God and this environment, the Holy of Holies, an ultimate place. Really, that's what heaven is. It's the Holy of Holies. It's a return to the Garden of Eden of how it used to be. Well, let's explore this. Let's get down into this understanding of sacred space and what it really means and entails for us because there's a very heavy application that we all need to get from this. What does sacred space mean? Let's explore this. Start in verse 16 of chapter 21. And it says this, the city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with a reed. 12,000 furlongs, which is about 14 to 1,500 miles, in its length, breadth, and height are equal. So the idea in the Greek is tetragonos, which means it's a four-angled place. It's a square, a uh, quadrangle. And so the idea is it's a massive cube, about 14 to 1,500 miles square, the New Jerusalem. Okay, what's significant about a cube? Let me go through some factors with you real quick. A cube will give you the factor of eight. There are eight points to it. Again, eight represented in Hebraic grammatria is symbolic of new beginnings, new days. For instance, eight symbolizes the day that people would circumcise their children. They were supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. That's why the cube has eight points. It's something new, something brand new. In the Hebrew understanding of the Jewish week, there were seven days. And what a lot of people don't understand is that there was a celebration on the eighth day as well. So when we say Jesus was resurrected on the third day, it's also in Jewish understanding, he's resurrected on the eighth day. The Sabbath being number seven, Saturday, And then Sunday being not only the first day of the week, but also the eighth day of the week in the Jewish understanding. And again, obviously with the resurrection, it means new beginnings. A new day has occurred. And so it has to do with something new. So this is the new Jerusalem. That's where it has eight points. Notice it's a perfect cube. The perfect cube symbolizes the holy of holies. Let me show you in Moses' tabernacle. If you recall, you had the holy place, and you had the outer court, obviously. And in the holy place, you had the altar of incense, menorah, table of showbread. But then you had the holy of holies, which is a perfect cube. 
And then you have obviously the Ark of the Covenant, which was God's footstool, and his presence would be in the Holy of Holies. And if you recall, Moses could go in there and commune with God, but only the high priest could go in there once a year on Yom Kippur, a day of atonement, with blood, and then he could lay the blood on the altar, and he could only be in there one time. And we talked about that a little bit last week. That was the Holy of Holies. So one person could go in there. No one could just barge in there. And very few people could even get in. You had to be a priest to get into the holy place. So it was a place of restriction. And this goes all the way back to the garden. Once Adam and Eve fell, what happened? They were kicked out of the holy of holies, the garden holy of holies. And God put a cherub with a flaming sword to keep them out. You cannot enter my presence anymore. And so that was keeping them out. And so ever since then, no one has been able to go into the Holy of Holies and commune with God. And so this was the lesson that Israel was being taught. And here's kind of what it would have looked like, similar to this, because it was all encased with gold. And with the Shekinah glory above the ark, that was the only light in the Holy of Holies. Otherwise, there was no natural light, no artificial light. The light came from God's Shekinah. So that's what the priest would have seen as the Shekinah glory reflecting off of all the gold over the wood. I have a couple other pictures, I think. Here's another picture of it. And you can see how it would have reflected the light to the high priest. This is where you, got, you start seeing the gold in the New Jerusalem. It's patterned off of that. Let's go to the next one. You can see what it would have looked like with the tent opened up, and you can see inside. Okay, let's go to now. Then Solomon builds the temple, and in Solomon's temple, we finally have a permanent location for the Holy of Holies. And you can see in the back, the Holy of Holies then changes. It gets bigger, but it stays in a cube form. And then you have the cherubim. You can see that their wings stretched across, guarding the throne of God. And the, the ark was there, and it went up another level. Today, if you look at the Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock sits, that's where the Solomon's Temple was. That was the highest peak of that mountain, Mount Moriah, right there. And that's where Solomon would have had his temple. As you can see, it's higher in Solomon's Temple. They would have taken stairs up to it. And again, it was a cube space. And then you have the cherubim up there guarding the space. And then also on top of the ark. For today, under the new covenant, in the church age, the holy of holies, so to speak, is in our body, believe it or not. The body now is considered the temple of the Lord. And basically, we have a down payment on our adoption one day. Will we be adopted? Which, which means we'll get a, a glorified body. But right now... The Holy Spirit now indwells permanently in our Holy of Holies. Our Holy of Holies is what's called the new nature. The Holy Spirit now indwells the new nature in us if we've been born again, and he indwells that location. So that's why Paul will make this, the point that our bodies now are the temple. Again, but it's ultimately pointing as a, it's a down payment for the next reality that we're going to get ready to have, which is the new Jerusalem, where we're actually in God's presence face to face. He indwells us now, but we will see him face to face. But it's, a, it's just, again, I want you to conceptualize the cube of the new Jerusalem. This is a massive holy of holies. That's what this is. That's why it's in the cube shape. Do you know what the counterfeit 
to this is? There's one object you've seen in all ancient civilizations on the planet. It's a formation that is in direct contrast with a cube. It's a pyramid. We see this obviously in Egypt, but in Mesopotamia, the remains of the Tower of Babel, it's a ziggurat, which is pyramid-shaped. And if you go to all the ancient civilizations, what you'll see is ancient formations of pyramids. Mayans, Aztecs, all have pyramid shapes. That's a counterfeit to the cube. Because the cube shows holy of holies is perfect, whereas a pyramid is man's attempt to reach up to God and work his way to the heavens. So it's in direct contrast. So even in the shapes that you see out there, the shapes mean things. So what is this? This is sacred space. Okay, what's the size of this? Let me show you the next picture. If it was put on planet Earth, this would be the size of the New Jerusalem. Now, I want you to think about this. It's 14 to 1,500 miles square as a perfect cube. What this means is there's about 2,250,000 square miles just on the base alone. Okay? As far as cubic, and we think that this, this space has multi-dimensions, not just three dimensions, but multi-dimensional. If you do the cubic miles, it's 3 billion 375 million cubic miles. That means up and down, across, using all the space. It is massive. Okay, so let's do some calculations. From Adam to our time, it's estimated there's been about 40 billion people on planet Earth. Estimation. If you take in the millennium that there's only death of unbelievers, you might have another 40 million people who live in the millennial kingdom, future. If you take that, it gives you about 80 billion people. Then you take children in that have died before the age of accountability, babies and children. They estimate about 20 billion children who would be in heaven. So you have from Adam to the end of the millennium, including children that have died, about 100 billion human beings that have ever been created, estimation-wise. But Jesus said... Broad is the road of destruction and narrow is the path and very few who find that path. So let's just take an estimate. Let's estimate that 20 billion people make it to heaven. Okay, It may be less than that. Okay, If we take 20 billion people and we stick that number into the new Jerusalem and the cubic miles and the square miles, I want you to think about how much space you would individually have if 20 billion people were in this cube. Because you think, well, what would be like this? It would be standing like that. There's hardly any room with all those people. No, 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 no. You would have to yourself 75 acres to yourself alone and more cubic. So you have a third of a mile going every direction up, down, below you, to the side, a third of a mile given to you for your own space. Dude, I can make a golf course on that. That's what I'm thinking. When I get there, hey, I can start designing my own golf course. I can be my own Tiger Woods designer. You know, you can make your own amusement park with space like that. 75 acres per individual, cubic, up, down. It's massive. For 20 billion people. So what we see is God is saying to us, hey man, you're not going to be crammed up. 
you're going to have your own park to you. You're going to have your own space. And I'm giving this space to you for all eternity. Beyond going outside of the place, you're not trapped inside the place. You get to explore the vastness of the new universe and the new earth. This is just your home pad. That's all. Imagine your own home has 75 acres. Wow. It's huge. This place, and you can see it on the continental in the United States. Go to the next slide. This is what it would look like over the United States. That's how big it is. Massive. Absolutely massive. And then you put, again, another picture on the earth. This is what it would look like. So it's obvious that on the new earth, it seems that the new earth will probably be bigger to accommodate it because, you know, this is odd. So we theorize that the new earth that God creates is going to be more massive in its size to accommodate this place because our earth would not accommodate it. Okay, so give me some numbers. This is just on the ground level, by the way. Just the ground level. We don't understand multidimensional. So going up and down. And again, you are like an angel. You have the ability to fly and move about. You don't, you don't, you're not bound by the laws of gravity in this place. So as much as angels move across these areas, up, down, vertical, horizontal, you too can do the same thing. So the concept of space is very difficult sometimes. We just think of flat surfaces, but you have to think multidimensional. And that being the case, it's 10 times bigger than France and Germany. It's 40 times bigger than England, and it's 15,000 times bigger than London, just to give you some estimations. It's massive, just massive. Let's move to the materials of the place. Let's skip down to verse 19, because we've already dealt with verses 17 and 18 already, so I don't want to repeat. So let's jump to verse 19. And it says this, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophaz, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelve amethyst. Now, just show you some pictures of what we think some of these, again, some of them were guessing because it's using the ancient words. And sometimes we don't know what the modern equivalent to the jewel will be. So we're taking our best guess. And so what you start seeing is these are the colors associated to this place. It's absolutely beautiful. And if you were looking on the foundation stacked up against each other, this is what the foundation would look like. And it's just absolutely just all jewels and metals. This is very similar to what we saw with the jewels on the high priest's vestments. If you can look at this as the breastplate of the high priest, these jewels represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and he wore that on his chest as a representative of that. But again, all the jewels are pointing to something. Let me show you some other pictures of the high priest. And then obviously he would have on the breastplate right there in the front of him is where the jewels would be, and you can see that. I think we have a close-up. There we are. That's how it would look. Okay, so what is this idea of even the breastplate of the high priest, and then you have the foundations of these different colors? What are all these jewel things pointing to? It's real simple. It's a principle in Scripture. It's a principle that the jewels and the metals only come from God. What comes from man is wood, hay, and stubble. Man takes what God has created, and he refashions them, wood, hay, and stubble. But Man has to find the jewels. Man has to find the metals that are already in the earth and use them. And so the idea is jewels or metals always are symbolic 
of God's work, not man's work. So that's why even I said last week, God would require for the temple, it had to be made out of stone, cut stone. It could not be brick because bricks are man-made. It had to be stone, what naturally came from the earth. And so the metals and the jewels naturally come from the earth, which are God-made. So this place is, is telling us this is God-made, not man-made. Okay, let's go to verse 21. It says, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. And in verse 21, each individual gate was of one pearl. This is where we get the term pearly gates. Now, a pearl is a gem, but it's naturally created out of living flesh, right? It's not created from heat and the process of volcanic activity or anything like that. It's a jewel that comes from living flesh. But if you've studied how pearls are made, it starts with an irritation, right? It starts with a wounding of the oyster. And a piece of sand gets in there. And so the oyster then surrounds that piece of sand with this chemical that starts making what we call a pearl. And it binds up to be a very smooth process as the oyster creates it. But okay, what's the point? Why are there pearly gates? Well, again, this is the only jewel that comes from living flesh that comes from a wound. You see where it's pointing to? Yeah, you got it. No doubt, gold, silver, the gems, the emeralds are made by God. But this one gem, God did make, but he had to become a living human being, right? He had to take on flesh. And in that flesh... He bore our wounds, right? He became wounded. And out of that wound comes a very precious gem we call salvation. Hence, the symbol of the pearl is a symbol of what Messiah did and produced this gem that gives salvation. And that's why it's at the door of the new Jerusalem. What did Jesus say about him being the door? He is the door, right? He is the gate. No one comes to the Father except through him. And it's the pearl that he created through his death, burial, and resurrection that creates that gift that we take by faith. And so all the doors have this pearl to forever remind you and I that the only reason that we have ever been allowed entrance into this place is because of the pearl that Messiah was able to produce, the gospel, the, the death, burial, and resurrection. That's why it's there. Verse 21, and it says, The street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And again, the gold reminds us of the tabernacle, reminds us of what was in the temple because Solomon had to inlay gold everywhere. And even in Herod's temple, the gold was just all through that whole temple. And what it meant was that the Shekinah glory was able to reflect through the whole place. And in this city, the Shekinah glory just reflects off of everything. It's transparent, but there's no shadows. It just goes everywhere. Read an interesting joke this week. I guess it was funny, I guess. And so you're going to have to go with this, all right? So you have to let some theology go a little bit. It's not theologically accurate, but I was reading this this week, and it goes, um, 
there was a man getting ready to die, but he had made a lot of money. And so uh, he prayed to the Lord, Lord, I know I'm getting ready to die, but I kind of want to take some stuff with me as I go to heaven. So an angel appears, and uh, he says, God has heard your request, and what do you want to bring? He goes, well, I I amassed a fortune here. I want to bring some of my gold with me because I don't want to leave it all here. I want to take some with me. Angel goes, all right, let me get back to you. So the angel flies to heaven, comes back, and says, all right, God has made a concession for you. You can take whatever you want. If you want to take your gold, fine, but you can only take it in one briefcase. That's it. You can have one briefcase, and that's it. And God goes, all right. So he packed up that briefcase with gold, and eventually he just passed away, and he had that briefcase at his bedside. So when he came to the gates of heaven, and this is where the theology is all goofed up, all right, so just bear with me. It's a joke. Okay. St. Peter, so to speak, that's, you know, Peter doesn't meet you at the pearly gates, all right? That's just, that's another, that's just folklore, uh, if you want to call it. So Peter meets him at the gates and says, hey, buddy, stop right there. You have a briefcase and you can't bring that into heaven. Nothing earthly can come into heaven. And he goes, wait a second. I prayed. Angel came back and told me that God said I can bring it in. And, and I was all fine. He goes, well, let me go check on this. So Peter goes and he goes, checks at the office and he comes back and he says, all right, it's true. They have let you bring it in, but I, I, they have told me that I have to inspect the contents of what you're bringing in. So open it up. So the man opens it up and he shows Peter the gold that he's brought to heaven. And Peter looks at it and he says, what are you, an idiot? You brought the pavement. Wow. Wow. You brought the pavement. The streets are gold. Don't you get it? The streets are made of gold. All right. That's not, I'm not doing any more jokes anymore. You don't, you just, you're asleep. You're just not getting it. All right. We didn't laugh. I mean, come on. I thought that was a pretty good joke. You brought the streets. Uh, you brought the pavement. Because the pavement is gold. All right, let's move on. Never mind. You're not in a joking mode. Verse 22, I think we're at. Yeah. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So this is what's different, because there's no need for a temple to keep restrictions out. You have full access to God. You can go in front of him. There's no restrictions. So that's totally different. Verse 23, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. So it has, it's, it's the, the light is lit by, by God's Shekinah. Okay, what does that mean? Look in verse 24. The nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Jump to verse 26. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Let's unpack that a little bit. That's fascinating. Nations, the ethnos in Greek. Yes, people will keep their distinctions of where they're from. There's a reason for that. 
You think, well, we're all the same. We are all the same under the, under the cross. Absolutely. But what's different is why does God want us to identify with where we came from? You will identify as an American that lived in the 20, 20th and 21st century, and you will identify as that. Why? Because God is showing through all of creation that his gospels went out to all the nations and different people from those nations got saved. He says, you know, those who are saved. So you keep your distinctions of where you're from because it brings God more glory. Okay, but notice what it it says. They walk in his light. They walk in his light. There's a whole passage in Galatians chapter 5 that talks about walking in the light. What does that mean? It means for people to obey and do what the Messiah wants them to do. Well, that's the struggle right now. But it says in the future, everyone will walk in the, the Shekinah, the light, but literally, but also spiritually. That there's no one there that doesn't disobey. All the nations obey him and do what they're supposed to do. But notice this too, that the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. What kings? What other kings other than King Jesus? Ah, Now we get a precedent. Now we get somewhere to hang our hat that rewards are eternal. Because in the New Jerusalem, you're in eternity. This is not the Messianic kingdom. And there's debate between theologians whether our rewards are only for the thousand years or whether our rewards are for eternity. And this verse... I definitely can point out, at least as ruling and reigning and being given kingship, is an eternal reward. Oh, well, that brings a heavier weight to what I'm doing right now. Because notice what they do. They bring their glory and they bring their honor into the gates. Not God's glory and honor, but their own. Well, why would these kings have glory and honor? It's simple. It's what they've been rewarded with. Their position as king for all eternity is a reflection of God's glory because this is what their reward is. They got the reward from Jesus. It reflects his glory. It's their glory as well. And we're told, we're promised glory. We're promised appreciation that for what we do, that will reflect glory. And obviously it points back to his ultimate glory. But here's the deal. This is what's called an active reward, an active reward, not a passive reward. This has to do with why there's so many crowns in the Bible. There's five we know at least of. There might be more, but all the crowns have to do with ruling and reigning as kings. So, for instance, let me give you the first five of why someone is rewarded for these first five. The first one is the incorruptible crown, which means it's mastery over the sin nature. Mastery over the sin nature. The second crown is those who joyfully wait for Christ's return. They're, they're, prophet, they're in the prophecy. They're looking for the timetable. And they live righteously according to that. That's called the crown of righteousness. The third crown is the crown of life. Those who endure trials and tribulations in a biblical way get the crown of life. And then there's those who evangelize and influence others towards righteousness. That's the crown of joy. There are those who finish the calling that God gave them to do. They finish their mission in life. That's called the crown of glory. Crown of glory. Notice the glory. 
But there's all kinds of things. There's other rewards in Revelation 2 and 3 talk about overcoming certain things, overcoming apostasy, overcoming Laodicea mentality, overcoming the Jezebel spirit of false doctrine and spiritual adultery. All those things eventually get rewarded, and those people will bring their rewards into the new Jerusalem, and they'll have their own honor and glory. But I can tell you this, those people are not being rewarded right now. They look like fools to the world right now because they serve and they serve and they serve, and the world looks at them and says, what are you getting out of this? Well, the Scripture is saying that's what they get out of it. They might look dumb to the world. They might look, well, what you're doing is stupid. What you're doing is insignificant, but it's not. Eventually, God rewards them with crowns and honor, and they bring that into the new Jerusalem. Pretty amazing. Verse 25, its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. Jump to, I want to throw in Revelation 22.5 real quick because that's talking about the same thing. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light. Now, again, this is real, but it's also a spiritual lesson as well. There's no night there. And that's why the gates are not shut. Let me show you the pearl gate, just to have an understanding. Okay, the gate remains open because there's no night. I mean, like, what does that mean? Well, you have to go back to ancient times and to understand the purpose of gates and walls and all that stuff. At night, if you lived in an ancient city, they would close the gates. You couldn't get in there at night because they're afraid of being overtaken by bandits or robbers or an invasion from another army. So they would close the gates at night. But because there's no night the gates remain open. Okay, so I get that, but what is it metaphorically saying to me? What is it spiritually saying to me? It's pointing to the reality. There's nothing that can threaten this place. That's why the gates stay open. The light means that the revelation of God comes through the whole place. There is no shadow. There is no evil. There is no sin that can make it in. If you remember, God had to put in cherub with a flaming sword to keep Adam and Eve out. Because if they went in there, they would desecrate the place. And that's the same that's associated with the tabernacle and the temple. Not everybody could go in there because they would desecrate the place. Well, there's no one to desecrate it anymore. Everyone that could possibly desecrate this place is in the lake of fire. The devil and his angels and every unregenerate that never came to faith is in the lake of fire. So there's no threat anymore of anyone doing anything wrong or threatening you. So these gates stay open and wide. Verse 27. But there shall be no means enter in anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So basically only saved people. And you think, okay, I get that. I get that. But let's really drill down on what that means. Again, if people die without Christ, they die in their sins. And then they get labeled, according to the scripture, by their most prominent proclivity. So if lying was their proclivity, they get labeled a liar. Sexual immorality was their proclivity, they get labeled a fornicator, whatever. They're called by their most prominent sin because they end up dying in that sin. And he's saying, look, those who die in their sin, they're not coming in. They're not going to defile this place. There's no abomination or anything. Okay. So right now, as I get ready to go on my soapbox, 
remember, I'm not attacking the people because they still can get saved, but I'm attacking the mindset. Because when you see a passage like this, it's easy to gloss over and say, yeah, that's in the sweet by and by. But I want you to remember the reality that you're living in. We're living a very harsh, evil, sinful reality. Just try raising kids in this environment. It's a nightmare, right? Because you have a lot of things coming at you. So let me get on my soapbox. There will be no more blasphemers. Like the Minnesota State University professor, Eric Spankel, far left Satanist, who you accuse God of being predatory to Mary. That she didn't give consent. Hashtag me too. Yeah. Accused God of being predatory. That this, this he said that uh, this virgin birth story is about an all-knowing, all-powerful deity impregnating a human teen. There is no definition of consent that would include a scenario. Happy holidays from the Satanist. Someone quickly pointed out Mary did give consent, which he responded, well, there's too much power in that dynamic between God and a human for consent to be legit. The biblical God regularly punished disobedience. The power difference, deity versus mortal, and the potential for violence for saying no negates her yes. To put someone in this position is unethical abuse of power at best, grossly predatory at worst. Yeah, that's coming out of your universities, by the way. You think about sending your kid to college? That's the junk they get. Not in the New Jerusalem. No blasphemers. No more God-haters of calling you and I supremacists, religious supremacists, for saying Jesus is the only way. He's the only one that died for them. That's why the pearl's there. They don't want it. There's no hostility to Jews and Christians anymore there because the gates have the Jewish names of the tribes and the foundation of the the apostles' names are there. There's no more hostility to uh, Jews and Christians. There's no more brainwashing our kids in public schools. You hear these kids reading, I have two dads or I have two moms. The newest book that's come out to four to eight-year-olds in the public schools is called Peaceful Fights for Equal Rights. Can you imagine that? What are they teaching the kids? Oh, this is what they teach. Teaching kids how to protest and resist. Boycott, camp out, file a lawsuit, strike, supporting radical feminism, diversity, dissent, pro-immigration, pro-equal cultures. That's all in the book for four-year-olds, by the way. Coming out to a school near you. Social justice warriors, communistic, socialistic. No more. They're all gone. No more bagging on the Bible, saying it's full of errors. Hey, we've had 2,000 years. You can't prove anything. It's consistent. It's divine. It's supernatural. And you can deny it all you want. No more Richard Dawkins, no more Christopher Hitchens, no more Sam Harris's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness according to Romans 1. Again, I'm not attacking them personally, I'm just attacking what their philosophy of life is. They're atheists. No more false religions, no more Islam, Catholicism, Mormonism, Hinduism, Buddhism, JWs, all gone. No more cults. Again, I'm not attacking the person, I'm attacking the religion. These are false satanic religions. They're all gone. No more globalism telling us we need a one-world government to solve humanity's problems through implementing Marxism. It's gone. No more intersectionality, creating a world of victims. Everyone has positive rights, and the weirdest individual has the most rights. 
If you want to marry a horse and be a transsexual, transgender, whatever, yada, 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 Martian, I guess you have the most rights on the intersectionality of hierarchies. Huh. No more mothers teaching their boys to be transgenders and cross-dressers and not celebrating it. No more transgenders reading in public libraries to kids and goofy parents taking those kids to listen to the transgender demon-inspired individual reading a book to them. No more, it's gone. No more calling Christians and Jews bigots, racists, xenophobic, LGBT-phobic, Islamophobic, white supremacists, religious supremacists, gone. No more universities brainwashing our kids with race studies, feminist studies, porn studies, queer studies, claiming that the problem is white evangelical Americans are the problem. No more, it's gone. No more satanic economic systems like socialism, Marxism, London School, of economics, Keynesian economics, all gone. No more people saying capitalism is the problem or the free market. No more telling us that we're global warmer deniers. We, we, you know, come on. No more colleges like Yale offering vending machines for the morning pill after with some girl or guy who had fornication the night before on Saturday night, and then they go into the dorm where there's a vending machine to take the abortion pill, the morning pill after, so she can erase what she did by murdering a baby. That's Yale. They're offering into the vending machines. No more anti-Semitic, anti-Zion rhetoric. No more attacking biblical marriage, biblical families. No more political correctness. It's gone. How about this? No more Church of England giving a second type of baptism for transgenders for their new sexual identity. That's gone. No more gay pastors telling people that premarital sex is okay. No more feminist pastors melting down purity rings to create a vaginal statue. Yeah, purity rings we put on our kids say, hey, we're going to wear a purity ring until you're married. The new trend is we're going to melt those rings and create a vaginal statue with it to celebrate your fornication. No more. No more pastors and churches having meditation, centering, yoga, new age practices at their church and on their website. No more people telling us to accept that they're insane and accepting that as normal. That's gone. No more Celine Dion giving Illuminati and New Age clothing to kids that are gender neutral. No more Facebook centering Santa bowing a knee to baby Jesus. You believe that? No more McDonald's worrying about offending people offering gender neutral toys and Happy Meals. Because he might feel he's a girl or she might feel she's a boy. We don't want to make them feel so bad. I know I'm on a soapbox, but when you start getting into when it says nothing's going to defile this place. We live in a world where we're so used to it being defiled by nonsense. You just kind of get used to it. But in this place, God's saying it ain't coming in. It's not there. There's going to come a time in your life where you never have to worry about it again. I'm going to erase it all. Those who won't accept me will be in the lake of fire. Those who will will be in this pure environment. This is what we're all longing for. This is what our heart's desire is, a place where it's pure. What's the application? 
sacred space equals this. When I'm talking about the Kodesh HaKodeshim, I'm talking about sacred space, but here's the word that you need to understand. The sacred space is about acceptance. Acceptance via the Messiah. See, back in the Garden of Eden, man had acceptance. You know how he had acceptance? He walked in the cool of the day with Yahweh, and he was naked. That's a spiritual reality that Adam and Eve were vulnerable to the Lord because they had acceptance from him. And then what happened? Sin entered into the picture and broke them off. God had to put a sword and prevent them from coming in. And ever since then, we, have, we can't get to God because of our sin, right? And you know the story. And that has prevented our acceptance into his court. We can't go into his court. He's put a wall there. I'm too holy. You're sinful. There's a barrier between you and I. Well, you know the story. God sent the answer. He said it in Genesis 3. The woman will bear a child. We'll have a seed. That seed is the Messiah. And you know the story. So what Jesus does is he creates, through his death, burial, and resurrection, the entryway back into acceptance with Yahweh. He created that path back. That's why the pearl's at the gate. He's the gate back. He's the way back to communion with God, but acceptance where we don't have to be ashamed. Do you know why Jesus was crucified naked? Most people have the artist's rendition that he has a loincloth on him. He doesn't. They would have crucified him naked. Why? What's the symbolic meaning of that? What was Adam and Eve, right? They were naked. He's the second Adam. He goes on the cross. He's stripped down to bear our shame, our spiritual nakedness. He takes on on the cross. That's why he's naked. He's taking on our nakedness, our shame, our guilt. And he bears that on the cross. So that we, if we come by Messiah back to Yahweh, do not have to fear condemnation. And we can come to Yahweh spiritually naked, or the other word is vulnerable. That I don't have to hide from God anymore. That in the Kodesh HaKodeshim, I can be who I am and be completely accepted by Yahweh because of what Messiah did for me. I don't have to hide. I can be in his full presence and be loved for who I am, not love for what I do. And that is the crux of the matter. Now you think, well, I get that. Okay, I'm glad. But you've got to take it one step further. See, we understand we're accepted by Yahweh because of Messiah. We have entry. Now we can go before him. But you know what? What I find out is a lot of us still keep our distance from Yahweh because we won't accept grace. We do for salvation, but we won't for sanctification. We rebel against grace because our sin nature says, I don't want to be given anything free. I want to earn it. I want to perform. I want to relate to you by law. And that messes us up. So, when, so here's the deal. You can experience 
this holy of holies in your own sanctification if you're willing to still function with a foundation of grace based on acceptance of you, good parts and bad parts. We all have bad parts in us. We all have broken parts in us. We all have immature parts in us. And that's what we try to keep away from Yahweh. We pretend we don't have them. And Yahweh's saying, you don't have to run from me. Come to me. Messiah paid for your sins. I, can't, I won't condemn you for your bad parts. I want to help you. I want to help get those broken parts fixed. I want you to grow like my son. And I want to, I want to heal you up. But you won't let me. Because you would refer, prefer to relate to me based on law. And there's a lot of Christians that relate to Yahweh based on law. See, grace is risky for a lot of people. They're just not quite sure about that one. You're just going to accept me for how I am? Yeah. I don't know about that one. I would rather play this game with you. I'll relate to you on your standards. I'll try to keep the law. Or this is what they'll do. I'll try to relate to you on my family of origin standards. Or I'll try to relate to you on the standards I've created for myself. Guess what? I don't care what law you keep. Yahweh's or you keep your own, or you keep your family of origin standards. Whatever standards you end up keeping, I can tell you what it results in. You won't grow. You just won't. Law kills. But you, Brandon, if I, use, if I don't use standards, I'll lose a sense of control. Do you understand what that standard's doing for you? You're creating your own sense of self-righteousness. If I keep the standards, I feel good about myself. But I can tell you what it results in. You'll become disconnected from God and others. You're always going to try to prove yourself to God and others. And you will become very angry individual. Because when you fail at the law, you get mad. You either get mad at yourself for failing and beat yourself up, or you'll get mad at God for having so high of a standard. That's how the game starts being played. Or you'll go one step further, and this is the kicker of why no one grows. They know the bad parts in them. They know the broken parts. And they know the parts that need to grow. But because they're relating by law, they'll just pretend they don't have them anymore. I don't have a problem. It's you're the one that has the problem. And so they just erase their issues and just kind of float away and go away. Or we don't even think about it. That's what law does. That's how people start relating to God. They don't want to relate to him on grace. So basically what they'll do is they'll push people away. They'll push acceptance away. They'll push love away because they're afraid of being rejected. They only want to relate to people on performance. Relate to people by law. I want you to see the performance-based person, not the, the ugly part, the good and the bad. I don't want you to see that. Just relate to the, the performance-based individual. And what they're doing, guys, is hiding. They're like Adam and Eve in a bush hiding from God in the garden. They're hiding. This is the game. This is how it's played. So instead of coming and embracing and saying, this is me and all my ugliness, and I know you accept me, I'm going to play the hiding game. I'll just keep parts hidden from you guys so you don't ever see them, and I'll front. 
That's how the game is played. I don't want you to see how needy I am. I don't want you to see how dependent I am. I don't want you to see my anger. I don't want you to see my lust. I don't want you to see my addictions. So I'm just going to hide and do performance, Brandon, so you can see the performance. And like the performance, Brandon. That's how the game's played. That's how people are doing their sanctification. They don't understand the Holy of Holies is now being able to enter into now. Uh, You can go beyond the veil, according to the writer of Hebrews, and you can go inside the Holy of Holies with boldness or confidence. And he's saying, there is no condemnation. Come to me. I will help you. But we are not going to operate between you and I on law and performance. My son performed for you. You're trying to be your own Messiah. Stop it. And if you stop it, we can now work on that. But I need you to be vulnerable, and I need you to confess what's going on inside of you. Because we're not going anywhere until you do that. This is the crux of the new Jerusalem. This is where we're going, but this is what needs to happen prior to this. Because deep down inside, here's what we want. We want to be totally accepted, good or bad, just accept me and love me for who I am. That's what we really want. And God said, I will offer that. I will, but you gotta go, you gotta play the game right. Let me show you this video just to give you an example on a human level of what God's trying to do with us. I want you to watch this kid. This kid, Davion, has been in foster care all of his life. His mom died in prison, and he's never really known his mom, and he's been in foster care in the system the whole time. Watch this story. Davion only says he's never giving up on his dream. He wants the love of a family. So one Sunday, this 15-year-old foster child got dressed up, took the mic at this Florida church where he stunned everyone with a simple request, adopt me. I just said, like, I know God hasn't given up, and I'm not either. I'll take anyone, he said, old or young, dad or mom, black, white, purple, I don't care. The pastor who allowed him to speak says the whole church burst into tears. It just ripped at me. I had a number of them saying, Pastor, if I just had room, I would take him tomorrow. This is your room? He's been in and out of homes nearly a dozen times and never had a room or even pillow of his own. He was so concerned about revealing the combination to the lock that protects his belongings, he hid it carefully from our cameras. People sometimes just don't know how hard it is and how much we try to do good. His local newspaper followed him into church that morning and then published his amazing story, how his mother was in jail when he was born, how he never knew his family, and how he discovered in June while surfing the internet that his mother had died. All of a sudden, his story spread far and wide. On Twitter, please someone, anyone adopt this kid. At 15, he knows he's older than what many families are looking for. He knows he's not a perfect kid. He has a temper he has to control, anger from those years where he waited for a mother who never came. His case manager says he's already an inspiration for other children waiting to find families. I think that's a human's right to be loved and wanted. And when you don't feel that you are, um, it's hard to succeed in life. What's the most important thing that you want me to tell America? Just like to love me forever. I just want people to love me for who I am and just to grab me and keep in their, uh, their house and just to love me no matter what. Think about that. I want someone just to love me forever and take me home. Take me to their house and make it my home. That's the message of heaven. God's saying, I'm willing to take you into my family. I'm willing to 
adopt you in, and I will love you forever. That's all we really want, isn't it? He finally got adopted. This is his court case. He was 16. He'd been in the system all his life. You know who adopted him? His caseworker. She had already adopted like three kids or something like that. Her name's Connie Going. And uh, he asked her, would you be my mom? And she finally said, I would. And so at 16, they went to the courts, and uh, he finally got his home. And you think, that's a great story. And you, you know, a lot of people, he actually went and be, would try out at other people's homes, and they took him back because he had anger issues, and he has issues. But the caseworker knew his issues and says, I still love you no matter what your issues are I want to bring in. That's God. I know what your issues are, but I'm going to bring you in, and I'm going to love you forever, and I'm going to create a home for you. Man, it doesn't get any better than that. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.